Welcome to The Usable Past, Episode 3. I'm Marie Nahikian, and I'm, um, it's kind of special to be joined with a fellow podcaster in the uh, studio, uh, PJ Ryan, who is the host of not one but two different podcasts. One is called Highly Melanated, and the other is Dear You. So welcome, PJ. We're delighted to, uh, to have you join this special, um, an invitation to Atlanta version, <laughs> episode three. Hi, Marie. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And um, also, your technical backup is, makes a big difference. So, <laughs> I guess it helped a little bit. Thank you very much. I'm excited to hear this story. Well... An invitation arrived in the office of the student newspaper called The Carolinian. It offered a plane ticket for a weekend of a higher education conference for student editors in Atlanta, Georgia, sponsored by the U.S. Student Press Association, funded by a Carnegie Foundation grant. Sounded important. Mm. I was the Carolinian features editor, the student Mm -hmm. newspaper, and said yes when everyone else said no. Okay. So the time is October 1967. I had just turned 21, starting my sophomore year at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. The university had admitted the first men male students in September of 64. Wow. About 1% of the students at that point were black, It was still primarily the Women's College of the University of North Carolina, founded in 1891. It is the first and the only public university in North Carolina that was founded for the purpose of educating women. In 1949, it became the largest all-female institution in the U.S., and UNCG Um, was as near a tradition as my family had because very few of us had gone to college. And my aunt and my older sister were the proud WC graduates. Okay. Now, UNCG, also known as WC or the Women's College, was in Greensboro, North Carolina, where there was also a very large um, black university known as A&T. Yeah. And it was home of some of the very early civil rights activities. The first um, sit-ins at the Woolworths lunch counter were in Greensboro. Black students had gone to the women's college for a number of years, but never in very many. It was never a very large number. So going to Atlanta, I had some travel experience. Um, I had taken family trips to St. Louis, to Michigan and Florida, And in spring of 1967, I had taken a break from college and was working full-time when I suddenly decided to quit, bought a $200 Icelandic airline ticket to Paris, took a train from Paris to Madrid where I met up with two high school friends, and went to Italy, uh, Florence and Rome. It was a very bold move, and special enough that my older sister gave me a leather passport wallet. Fifty years later, I still use it. I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, in the mountains, but I'd never been to nearby Atlanta, Mm -hmm. even on our trip south to Florida. So Friday, 
November 3, 1967, Piedmont Airlines from Greensboro, North Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia. Arriving a little bit after 8 p.m., my instructions had been to take a taxi to the conference hotel. Three cab drivers refused. I wasn't quite sure what that was about, but I was told to go with him, Mm -hmm. directing me to a cab with a black driver. And I said to the driver, I want to go to the Pascal's Motor Hotel, located on Northside Drive. I was very exact. I had no idea that Pascal's was brand new, and it was the only black-owned hotel in Atlanta. And it was the meeting place for much of the civil rights leadership, civil rights movement leadership, and also for Atlanta's black community. Mm. The black driver stared at me for a moment and said, well, if that's really where you want to go, and opened his door. I arrived at Pascal's, and there was this big crowd of very big black men in the lobby that kind of opened up and created a path for me from the front door to the front desk. And it was only later that I learned that I had arrived on the heels of the Grambling University football team Uh from uh, Louisiana, Grambling, Louisiana. The hotel found a reservation in my name, handed me a key. I opened the room to find two African-American women, my roommates. Mm. There were big looks of surprise, and finally one said to the other, uh, she's supposed to stay in our room with us? And the other said to me, you aren't staying in this room with us. Mm. I mumbled that this was the key they gave me. Uh, Maybe there was a mistake. And the hotel front desk, when I trooped back downstairs, uh, called the, quote, conference staff that finally approved a single room for me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a roommate. Saturday morning, November 4th, 1967, first up was the first session, a 10 a.m. workshop titled, I don't know, something like The Future. I was supposed to write something for my newspaper, so I went. The large conference room was packed with maybe, I don't know, 200 people sitting in auditorium style. And there was a woman speaking on the kind of low-rise stage, and there were a lot of African-American black men standing around the edges of the stage and lining all the walls of the room. I kind of hesitated when I walked in, not sure where to sit. And as I scanned for an empty seat, the woman who was speaking just stopped mid-sentence and said in a very loud voice, get the white honky bitch out of here. (laughs) Sorry. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Silence filled the room as a sea of black faces turned to stare. I looked around, realizing I was the white honky bitch. Oh, my gosh. Immediately, the security men who had been standing around the room in the edges of the stage were around me. We walked out of there. Mm-hmm. I remember being surprised and thinking, they don't even know who I am. I was unsure about what to do, where to go, what to write about. I did not know the speaker on the stage, remembering only 
her distinctive red hair afro, someone said to me in the lobby, don't worry about it. That's Kathleen Cleaver. <clears throat> Kathleen Cleaver, for those of you who may not know, yeah, at that time was the field secretary of the New York Student Nonviolent Violent Coordinating Committee, also a.k.a. SNCC. And she was head of the New York field office. And about this same time in 1967, I discovered much later, of course, Cleaver became the communications secretary of the Black Panther Party, the first woman member of the Panther Central Committee, which was a big deal for any woman. Hmm. Kathleen Cleaver is now a professor at the Emory University School of Law in Atlanta. And yes, she was married to Eldridge Cleaver. I ask in the Pascal's restaurant about where to walk. What should I see? I didn't really know much about where I was. A waitress told me, you know, Dr. King is coming home today and wrote down how to walk to a close-by church. I walked, and somewhere, I guess, I don't know, close to 2 p.m., it was a long walk if I remember, I was in the basement of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Mm where a large crowd of church members were preparing a coming-home reception for their pastor, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Dr. King arrived after spending five days in jail in Birmingham, ordered to serve again a second five days after the U.S. Supreme Court uh, appeal of the 1963 conviction, where he also had served five days in jail, but that appeal of that conviction had failed. And in 1963, even though he had spent five days in jail where he wrote the now famous letter from the Birmingham jail, he had just served another five days. And only recently did I learn that this five days in 1967 in jail was the last time that Dr. King was in jail. Hmm. Amazed and excited I was. And I saw Dr. King arrive, and he walked slowly to the front of the hall, stopping all along the way for hugs and clasped hands. Coretta Scott King was with him. Dr. King spoke a few brief words, like, I thank God for bringing—I think what he said, I thank God for being back safely at home. I wrote that down because I had this idea I was going to get an interview with him. I moved toward him, trying to ask for an interview, but not soon enough because he was whisked away saying, I hope you all will excuse me. I have a cold and I'm tired. And he was gone. Mrs. Coretta Scott King, however, remained in the room as the church members moved about, refreshments were served, I don't remember seeing any of the King children, but to be honest, it's likely that I may not have recognized them. I introduced myself to Coretta Scott King as a student journalist and asked if I could interview her. Her response was quick and courteous. Yes, of course, she said. Hmm. Let's talk over here, gesturing toward a small card table. I really had no idea about the impact of the person or the interview that I was about to have, the conversation with her. 
The interview continued for a while as the coming home reception ended and the women of the Ebenezer Baptist Church were cleaning up all around us. The conversation wasn't over, though. Uh, Ms. King invited me to accompany her to her home, noting that someone was driving her and needed to go now. I agreed, and our conversation continued as we drove to their home, where I was invited to join her at their kitchen table. Hmm. Wow. Dr. King was at home, um, but I did not see him. In fact, I didn't see anybody else in the house. After about a half hour more of the interview, Ms. King, Mrs. King politely encouraged me to leave, indicating that she would call a taxi to take me back to Pascal's. Okay. I didn't share with her how my day had started at Pascal's. In contrast to my experience at the conference that morning, my time with Coretta Scott King was reflective, and there was a, it had a kind of quiet resignation, but it was full of hope, but also quiet anger. You knew that she was angry. Hmm. For me, I don't know, this clearly symbolized the moment and the tension of how the civil rights movement would move forward. The stark contrast between SNCC's demand for action and the Southern Christian leadership's commitment to nonviolent protests. And this was, this was a weekend that changed my life. So I'll share with you the words of Coretta Scott King as she told them to me and as it was published in the Carolinian at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Mrs. King started, and I should note, this I later found out was one of the few interviews she ever gave. Um, This is what she said. My husband is still overwhelmingly the man to whom the Negro looks to and trusts. My husband's role has been a very significant one. The position he has taken is the right one and the one that will win. The term black people is misrepresentative. We believe not in black or white, but in the power of the people. Mm. Yet the Negro is deprived of all power, politically and economically. The Negro has become bitter and impatient with the conditions of society. In 1955, there were a series of direct abuses to the Negroes. The NAACP was outlawed in Alabama, and there was bus segregation in Montgomery. And as a result, we organized the bus boycotts in Montgomery, which were the first nonviolent reaction to these abuses. That's in 1955. Wow. My footnote. In 1957, we formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, and my husband was elected president. In 1960, he was jailed with the students in Atlanta, which resulted in the desegregation of some restaurants and lunch counters. These demonstrations made the Negro aware of his deprivations. About six months prior to the demonstrations that led to Dr. King's arrest, he was arrested just outside Emory University for a traffic violation. It seems that in moving from Alabama to Georgia, We had failed to transfer tags and license. As a result of this encounter, he was placed on a six-month suspended sentence 
of which our lawyer never told us, never informed us. Therefore, when Dr. King was arrested in Atlanta in 1960, he was kept in jail several days after the students had been freed without bond for violating this probation. At this time, I was carrying my third child and was deeply troubled by the fact that we had been unable to do very little about getting my husband out of jail. At the time, John F. Kennedy was contending for the Democratic nomination for president. I answered the phone one night to find Mr. Kennedy on the other end. He expressed a deep concern for our situation and offered to help us in any way possible. I told him that we would be deeply appreciative of anything he could do for us. The next morning, I went down to the Atlanta jail only to find that my husband had been moved at 4 a.m. that morning to the Reedsville State Penitentiary. It was several days later that he was released through the aid of one of Mr. Kennedy's Democratic advisors. At this time, we had made no decision about our support for the 1960 presidential campaign. We had been very much impressed with Richard Nixon, and he had expressed concern for our cause. Yes, we did make the decision to support JFK and the 1960 presidential race. I can only feel, if history is ever written correctly, that our decision to support John F. Kennedy was responsible for his election in 1960 by such a small majority. Early in 1963, my husband, along with several other civil rights leaders, went to the White House to talk with President Kennedy about possible civil rights legislation for the upcoming Congress. We were told at the time that there was no plan for any type of legislation, as he, JFK, had several domestic programs that he was interested in seeing pushed through. My husband came home, and after deliberation about the situation, we saw no other choice but to go through with our plans for a massive demonstration. At this time, we pushed the massive Birmingham demonstrations. Birmingham was one of the worst racially segregated cities at this time, and it was an obvious place for us to begin. As a result, some public accommodations were willingly desegregated. We received great sympathy as a result of the fire hoses and dogs that were turned on the demonstrators in that Good Friday March of 1963. Hmm. I feel that civil rights legislation came as a result of these demonstrations. It was only after the legislation had been drafted that we planned the 250,000 march on Washington in the summer of 1964, after which passage of the legislation came. The Nobel Prize was a great responsibility on his shoulders, and it's something that we must live up to that he must, excuse me, reading it not correctly, and it's something he must live up to the rest of his life. It puts civil rights in a new international position. The prize was a symbol of hope and aspiration for the colored population outside the U.S. We could feel and identify with the world movement. Hmm. And that is the interview as... Coretta Scott King shared with me on that day in 1967, wow. November. That, what an honor. 
it's an amazing honor. Um, sometimes I reflect on it, and it's like it was such, it was such a kind of thing that just happened. You mm -hmm. know, you could not have. And it was many years later that, some years later that I realized the significance of the interview, mm -hmm. and then. One day, someone pointed out to me that the interview had been placed in the uh, archives of the Greensboro, North Carolina Civil Rights Museum, hmm. which is a museum worth visiting if someone ever... It's still standing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, it's been created and still there. I have ex actually have family in Greensboro. So you should go. I'm definitely going to go. So that is my invitation to Atlanta. Wow. I did meet Kathleen Cleaver again later in years, um, but that's another whole story. I look forward to hearing that one. Thank you. This has been The Usable Past, uh, Volume 3, talking about an invitation to Atlanta in 1967. And I want to say thank you to P.J. Ryan, a fellow podcaster who has his own two shows, two podcasts, Highly Melanated, and Dear You. Well, the Dear You Project. The Dear You Project. Thanks for getting that correct. No, it's okay. But you will find uh, more parts of the usable past to come. Thank you. Thank you. You haven't stopped yet.